States along the U.S. southern border react to the ongoing crisis and demand action by President Biden. This is Brief for Impact. This is Brief Before Impact. Welcome, everyone. I am your host, Matt Parker. We're starting episode 12, part two of our border security series. We'll be doing a three-part series on border security, and it's gained so much traction in the news recently. If you remember last week when we started with part one, we discussed and laid out the statistics behind the ongoing border security crisis and what's going on at the southern border, especially since President Biden took over in just early January of this year. Tonight, we'll be going into detail on what individual states along the border, as well as what private citizens have done in the past regarding border security and protecting uh, their land. And we will conclude on the subject of sovereignty and kind of outline what it looks like from a historical standpoint and then how it has morphed and shifted over the centuries. But before we get into tonight's episode, just a quick reminder, you can follow me on Instagram at Brief Before Impact. Certainly love your feedback and all your comments and questions there. But before we jump into tonight's episode, let's take a quick ad break, then we'll dive right in. Welcome back, everyone. So let's start off at my home state of Texas, outlining what the governor's office is doing in regards to the crisis at the border. Uh, This is coming from the Associated Press. Governor Greg Abbott and the Texas Department of Public Safety launched Operation Lone Star on Uh, this March, to focus on smuggling at the southern border of Texas, according to a release from the governor's office. Operation Lone Star will send law enforcement personnel and resources to, quote, high-threat areas of the border to deny Mexican cartels and other smugglers the ability to move drugs and people into Texas, the release says. This is something that you've certainly seen in the newspapers in this state, is the issue in the uh, challenge of not just an influx of people, but rather also an influx of illegal drugs coming across the borders during, uh, along with all these folks that are crossing illegally. And more importantly, as a highlight in the first part of this series, not just families that are moving together across the border, but specifically unaccompanied minors and the issue of human trafficking and sadly even into sex trafficking, which is a tremendous issue that should be addressed. This is been described in quite detail by uh, Governor Abbott's office and something they're looking to fight against utilizing this Operation Lone Star in Texas's own law enforcement to be a complement to federal border security uh, personnel down at the border. In addition to that, Texas has actually uh, sued the Biden administration in federal court over its decision to pause most deportations for 100 days. This is according to Michelle Hackman for The Wall Street Journal. A Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, quote, our state defends the largest section of the southern border in the nation, Mr. Paxton said in a statement. Failure to properly enforce the law will directly and immediately endanger our citizens and law enforcement personnel, end quote. Now, this is something we've seen other southern states highlight as well. It's not just the the humanitarian issue for the individuals making the long journey through Central and Northern Latin America to reach the American border. But what happens to those local communities alongside the border? Because sadly enough, these aren't just good folks trying to find a better life in America, but often, as we've noted before, uh, cartels and violent gangs are looking to exploit this opportunity and sadly exploit these people. And they will certainly endanger uh, American lives in order to 
reach their own financial gain. And this is what many of these southern states and tech attorney generals have tried to fight, at least in the courts. Now, that's for Texas. Moving into New Mexico, according to Algernon de Massa and Las Cruces Sun News, on February 4th, U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich, that's a Democrat from New Mexico, introduced legislation along with New Mexico's junior senator and fellow Democrat Ben Ray Lujan, as well with Senator John Corner, Cornyn, a Republican from Texas. The legislation is to set aside reimbursement funds for southern border communities if a local humanitarian response is required again. So this is kind of seeing the second and third order effects. If we think what happens to these local communities alongside the border, how are they going to handle an influx of hundreds or in some cases thousands of people on their streets? Maybe their local urgent cares and medical community centers or hospitals can't handle that kind of a load of new people. And so this is something that uh, a bipartisan approach at the federal level, trying to produce the funds that might help these local communities. Such an example of how the situation and crisis at the border affects local towns near the border as coming from actually from uh, a mayor in an Arizona town. This is according to Andrew Miller from the Washington Examiner. An Arizona mayor declared a state of emergency as a result of the surge of illegal immigrants at the United States-Mexico border and is placing blame at the feet of President Biden. Gila Ben Mayor Chris Riggs made the declaration after he was told that busloads of migrants will be dropped by the federal government in his town, despite him saying that the town is not capable of testing them all for coronavirus. That's according to Fox Business. Quote, Border Patrol let us know that they were going to be dropping migrants, that they had been detained for 72 hours in our town, which we really didn't understand because we have nothing here, Riggs said. We have no charity organizations that can help, no non-governmental organizations that a lot of larger cities and towns do have to assist these people. So in this example, you have a small town that really doesn't have the resources to even provide the basic necessities for these these, um, immigrants crossing the border. But the federal government decides, well, we have to move these people somewhere. There's none at this particular town. We're going to go here for at least a couple of busloads. And this is the problem that you're seeing, a disconnect between a policy coming from the federal government versus what the local policymakers, quote, the guys on the ground, what they're seeing and what they know to be true, how they can affect the situation. And this is a great example of that disconnect. Lastly, moving into California, and this is a report coming from KBBS by Max Nadler, 25 Asylum seekers were loaded into a bus on Friday, February 19th, 2021, Friday morning and driven to the United States where they'll continue their asylum cases. Each asylum seeker had been sent back to Mexico under the Remain in Mexico program, also known as the Migrant Protection Protocols. They'll now be helped by San Diego Rapid Response Network, which is a coalition of local nonprofits and the county which has provided hotel rooms for the asylum seekers. Quote, they'll be transported to local hotels and then we'll begin that work of doing a health screening, figuring where they're going, helping them make contact, figuring out where they have the funds or if we need to provide the funds for air travel, explained by Michael Hopkins, the CEO of Jewish Family Service, a leading member of the Rapid Response Network. The network says it's well prepared for the program to ramp up 
to 100 of asylum seekers each day. So you can see the discrepancies between each state. Some prepared for it, certainly have the resources, others do not. Yet the entire southern border as a policy is kind of being treated the same. And that's certainly an issue, which is why you're seeing certain states or even down to local communities uh, respond and act differently towards it. I wanted to outline just the differences between the local states and what the federal government and its approach to this border situation. Now, to pivot from that, I want to discuss real briefly the history of private citizens and how they've handled this from a security perspective of private property. In the past, um, numerous private citizens have organized groups to monitor sections of the U.S.-Mexico border. The groups had been composed of individuals with former law enforcement or military backgrounds, uh, some oftentimes not, and operate entirely on a volunteer basis. Many of those groups do not view themselves at, at odds with Border Patrol or other law enforcement units, but rather a complement to them. The number of groups like this, they had diminished over recent years. Now I'd be curious to see actually with this new crisis, if there would be a ramp up in these types of groups. But the issue is there is kind of this gray area of the law that allows such groups to exist. The distinction between defending private property, but involving in a federal border security patrol, it's a gray area. Now, inevitably, armed citizen groups patrolling in areas where one federal border security operates as well as two cartels smuggle people and and drugs into this country all within the same operating area. This certainly could lead to a mishap or heaven forbid an unintended tragedy. Now this is just kind of outlining what private citizens have done in the past. Uh, There's certainly plenty of ranchers along the border who have property to defend, who have ran into multiple issues of not just people crossing their land and property while they're moving into the northern interior of the United States, but uh, some issues at on occasion of theft. Uh, some ranchers have taken very much a humanitarian approach, providing uh, water spigots along their property and um, for the immigrants to utilize. But again, there is this challenge between uh, the defense of private property and and private land, as well as where the federal government and federal law enforcement is, is seeking to enforce the law that's on the, actually on the book. So that's just where an outline of state actions along the border, as well as a little bit of the private citizens. Let's take a, a direction to kind of cap off this uh, briefer episode tonight on the question of sovereignty. As you think about border security and border patrol, uh, the issue comes to my mind is what is sovereignty as a principle? You know, what do we believe in when it comes to the question of defending our borders? And what is that? What do I mean by our borders? You know, we often use words. Uh, this is my car. Certainly it's your car because you you bought it. You purchased it with dollars. But we also say the same things like this is my street. This is my neighborhood. But we don't really actually own the street or the neighborhood. So what does it mean to like defend our country, our border and so forth? And I found this terrific article. I want to just highlight a, a few thoughts Um from Foreign Policy by Richard Haas in 2009. Sovereignty, the notion that governments are free to do what they want within their own territory, has provided the organizing principle of international relations for more than 350 years. Now, 35 years from now, sovereignty will no longer be sanctuary. 
powerful new forces and insidious threats will converge against it. Nation states will not disappear, but they will share power with a larger number of powerful non-sovereign actors than ever before, including corporations, NGOs, terrorist groups, drug cartels, regional and global institutions, and banks and private equity funds. Sovereignty will fall victim to the powerful and accelerating flow of people, ideas, greenhouse gases, goods, dollars, drugs, viruses, emails, and weapons within and across borders. All of this traffic challenges one of the fundamentals of sovereignty, the ability to control what crosses borders. Sovereign states will increasingly measure their vulnerability not to one another, but to forces of globalization beyond their control. I think this assessment is absolutely spot on. We have modern examples that Haas was writing about that's so present day. First of all, he mentioned viruses. In the issue of COVID-19 virus, how does a country have sovereignty to defend its own borders against such a virus? In the early days, President Trump's administration, he shut down travel between certain countries in the United States. Yet the virus still ended up on our borders. Uh, emails. Think about the cybersecurity episodes I've done in the past where we've seen nation states like Russia, North Korea, China, all launching cyber attacks via emails or via other methods against the United States and its infrastructure uh, and its ability to operate its um, energy grids or or computer systems of a private company, etc. Now, where's the line drawn on the question for sovereignty? And how does a country go and defend itself in its borders or defend its, uh, its own individuals, its companies, its people, its economic interest? Whenever you have such a, an issue like a virus or an email that crosses a border without necessarily even being seen. And that is the question or issue that sovereignty as a principle will face moving forward. And we certainly see this now at the southern border. From a humanitarian perspective, we understand why thousands of people are fleeing Central America and parts of Mexico in order to reach uh, America's borders. America, in Matthew's opinion, is the greatest country on the planet. They're seeking opportunity because they don't have two things, economic security or economic opportunity, or physical physical security, or protection. So they're looking for a better life. So as a humanitarian perspective, we understand their intent to reach our borders. However, from a policy perspective, and a policymaker has to first put in the interest of the people he or she was elected to protect and defend, how does a policymaker view this principle of sovereignty whenever a potential um, virus could cross the border from someone being not tested at the border, for example, of COVID-19 flowing across illegally the southern border? And that's the balance. And that's the, the, the notion of this principle of sovereignty is being challenged in modern times because of the effects of globalization. While we certainly see the benefits of globalization in terms of trade and uh, economic productivity, there are certainly cons. So I just wanted to lay out to prep you for next week's episode as we cap off this three-part series into discussing border securities, uh, border security. And next week, I will outline, as I view it, 
uh, what is an effective border security policy. Now, a quick snapshot to that. This policy will be blended effort made by both things President Trump has done and President Biden has done. Uh, the longer you listen to this podcast, the more you'll hear me defend the that af- most effective policies typically lie somewhere in the middle between the political left and the political right. And that's the area where compromise happens. Because ultimately, I don't want to describe policies that are you know, wins for this political team or that one, but rather policies that provide the framework for American citizens to go out and enjoy the freedoms outlined in the Constitution. So thank you for joining us for tonight's little shorter episode. I certainly hope you are picking up what I'm putting down and join us next week to hear the the conclusion of this three-part series on border security. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact. If you like today's podcast, please rate and review us on the app you listen on. Feel free to engage with us on social media. You can interact with us on Instagram. Follow us at Brief Before Impact, all one word. Any views or opinions represented in today's podcast are personal and belong solely to Matt Parker and Brief Before Impact podcast. All content we provide is of our opinion and is not attended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.